Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. I'm actually taping this on the back of a bus <laughs> in the Shomron um, for tomorrow's broadcast because this is kind of going to be like a show of like a day in the life of Eve Harrow. I've had an unbelievable day with a beautiful family. You're about to hear from the patriarch, well, actually the semi-patriarch of the family um, in Sagot Winery in Tel Shiloh. And I'm with somebody really honored to be with him. Interviewed him a couple years ago, if you remember, and somebody who's really made a tremendous impact, not just on the Jewish world, but I would say the world in general. Elon Carr is here on a family visit and uh, just delighted to be with you. Well, hello, Eve, and what an honor and a pleasure again to be with you. I remember our interview well, but this today, of course, wasn't an interview. This was a remarkable, deep, uh, uh, transporting exploration of the history of the Jewish people and the history of the land of Israel. And, and first of all, I'm honored to do it with you. It was a real pleasure. And, uh, and also, it's a special honor to do it on the occasion of, of my daughter's bat mitzvah, which is the reason we're here. It's a trip for her, my second daughter's uh, bat mitzvah, which we're celebrating tomorrow. And uh, to connect in such a way with the history of the Jewish people as a people and the history of the Jewish religion as a faith, all in the same time by coming to places that bring the Bible to life, by walking the land that, um, that is... is exploding with history and significance and depth and spirituality. Think about this, you know, we we were in, in Shiloh together and spoke to the archaeologist who was uncovering the place where the tabernacle stood, the Mishkan. Now here we were standing on these ancient stones and talking about where it was exactly that the Holy of Holies was. Was it right here? Or was it a few feet away? That's the debate. I mean, that, that's the extent of the debate. Not that it was here, but where was it? Was it right here or was it a few feet away? This is so miraculous, so marvelous, and so utterly transformative. I have to tell your listeners, every single person in the world, whatever their belief should be here, should come here, should experience this. Because look, the history of the Jewish people and the history of what was given to the world at, at Sinai, right? It was given to the Jewish people in the covenant, of course, but it transformed the world and the entire history of human civilization was, was inalterably transformed at that moment when God selected the Jewish people for, for the covenant and shared that, that wisdom, the teaching, the Torah with the Jewish people. And and to be in the place where the where the Ark of the Covenant sat for hundreds of years is something that is uh, it's breathtaking. And uh, and again, I just have to say to your listeners, you all should come here. This is um, this is the living, breathing land of Israel, and it is uh, it is uh, alive and 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 crying out to tell us its its stories and um, and what a privilege it is for us to be able to hear those stories from these ancient stones. So it's been such a delight for me because I can really speak in Hebrew to your family. It's amazing. Your kids all speak fluent Hebrew. You do. You live in Los Angeles, but it's been so important for you to share our language with your kids and it just gives them an added dimension. But as for you, you are far from unfamiliar with the Middle East. No, that's right. First of all, my mother is a refugee from uh, from the Middle East, from the Arab world. You know, uh, we talked about about Jewish history and about the Babylonian exile. Well, 
my family comes from the Babylonian exile. We're Iraqi Jews, and uh, the oldest Jewish community outside of the land of Israel in, in ancient Babylon. And sadly, my mother watched her father, my grandfather, be arrested. He was paraded through the streets in leg irons and then thrown in prison for no reason other than being Jewish. Where was this? This was in Iraq. This was in Iraq in 1948. And after visiting um, uh, my grandfather in prison for two years, finally he said, don't wait, flee the country. And so my mother is a young girl, my uncle is a toddler, and, and my grandmother, their mother, fled across the border of Iran. Of course, a very different Iran than today. The Iran of the Shah, uh, the crown had rescued Jews during the Holocaust and then gave sanctuary and asylum to any Jew escaping Iraq, fleeing Iraq. So we escaped across the border and then from Iran to Israel. And then eventually from Israel to the United States. But <clears throat> So first of all, I'm intimately familiar with the Middle East from my own background. I grew up with, with Arabic in the home. I grew up in a trilingual home steeped in, in the cultures of the Middle East. <clears throat> and then, of course, as a, as a U.S. Army officer, in a remarkable twist of fate, I ended up deploying to Iraq, the very place from which my mother fled. And, and to be there really to help Iraqis, to work with Iraqis to help build a, a free and prosperous Iraq, liberated from the most appalling tyranny of Saddam Hussein. And, um, and so, yes, I'm intimately familiar with the Middle East. And, uh, and it was an honor, of course, to serve the United States um, around the world, including working with the government of Israel on all kinds of projects um, uh, aimed at fighting the, the scourge of Jew hatred that, uh, that is with us still today. You know, the anti-Semitism, this, this ancient and yet, yet modern, indefatigable sickness that still afflicts uh, um, so many parts of the world and something that that is really a, um, a, an indicator, a litmus test of spiritual rot and evil. And so, um, and so it was a privilege to represent the United States of America, the, you know, the greatest, most powerful country in history, in fighting uh, one of the most notorious evils of human history. Well, you actually had an official position doing so. I did. I was the United States Special Envoy to combat anti-Semitism. And, uh, and it was a tremendous honor to serve uh, my boss, Secretary Pompeo, and of course his boss, uh, President Trump, and, um, and the entire administration in the, in the work that we did. Uh, deeply, deeply important work uh, to, um, to fight Jew hatred, to stand strongly with the state of Israel, to, uh, to weaken and, um, and contain Iran, uh, which is one of the world's chief sources of, of anti-Semitism as well as terrorism. <clears throat> All of these um, great things, of course, led to to peace in the Middle East, right? I mean, the Abraham Accords, which uh, which has been uh, just a game changer uh, for the Middle East and for and for the history of of Arab and Jewish relations, both ethnically and and uh, you know Jewish Muslim relations religiously. It's an incredible time we're living in, <clears throat> and now it's really up to all of us to make sure uh, that that important work continues and that we don't. You know, we don't lose focus on what it takes to build a better world. Because at the end of the day, Eve, that's what this is all about. It's not this policy or that policy. It's all within the same framework and the same picture. And that is that arc of history. Where are we going? Where is humanity marching? To what direction? Uh, what kind of world do we want to see? Of course, it's, it's a world of, of, of freedom and prosperity and decency and spiritual grounding 
um, a world where the Jewish people in Israel is strong, a world where the United States is strong, a world where where oppression and evil and and uh, and ethnic cleansing and bloodlets bloodletting is uh, is uh, is ended. And uh, and the way to do that is to stay focused on on our principles and what's important and to make sure we lead our world to a better place and and that couldn't be more important. Are you worried about the current, what we think are the current discussions with the United States government and Iran? I think there is no good justification to empower one of the most evil and malevolent regimes on earth. A, A major source of instability, a deep and existential threat, not only to the Jewish people and the state of Israel, but a deep threat to civilization itself a threat to peace and security in the world, in Europe, and a threat to the United States. You know, Iran is not only racing toward uh, nuclear breakout, but also developing uh, ballistic missiles, including intercontinental ballistic missiles. And intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, they don't need ICBMs to hit Israel. And so let's be very clear about what Iran wants and, and what Iran is working to achieve. And for the United States to empower this regime, to throw it a lifeline, and and to waive sanctions on a regime bent on on instability and destruction, and and the promotion of anti-democratic forces throughout the Middle East and throughout the world, is scandalous. The United States, in the good old days, stood squarely on the side of freedom and democracy. And, and against oppression, for human rights, for civil rights, against those who would subvert civil rights and human rights. And, and again, I mean, I mean, even putting aside Iran's malevolent designs with respect to Jews and Israel, which, by the way, would be reason enough to do everything we can to contain a regime that despicable. But what the mullahs of Iran aim to do throughout the Middle East and throughout the world is, uh, you know, makes them a, a deep danger. And, and to empower this regime and to fund it, to give it the means by, wi- by which it can work its malevolent designs, is, is, is got to be one of the most counterproductive and dangerous things the United States can do. There's no good reason to do it. That's why the United States walked out of the, of the, of the foolish and misguided Iran nuclear deal. That's why we applied maximum sanctions pressure on the Iranian mullahs. Uh, that's why we, we reduced Iran's economy to rubble and destabilized the country. And, uh, and that's why the United States should continue to do those things. I mean, this, this shouldn't be a partisan issue, not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is, a, this is an American issue. This is a human rights issue. And so I, I, think, that's, I think the answer is very clear. And uh, so I'm, I'm deeply concerned and, and dismayed, frankly, that, um, that we would think to empower a regime bent on evil and bent on destruction. So what have you been doing since, uh, since your time as envoy, where you really worked very, very hard? Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is still with us. There's still what to do. But you certainly made an impact when you were there. What have you been doing since then? And perhaps until you get back to some kind of official position? Well, I've been doing a lot of things. Thank God, just uh, just you know, wonderful experiences. First of all, I have the great privilege. One of the first things I did was join the the advisory board of the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, a wonderful organization with global reach and enormous impact. 
when it comes to fighting all forms of anti-Semitism. You know, the far right, the radical left, and militant Islam. Um, you know, three uh, completely different ideological camps, yet, yet each of which um, is a deep threat to the Jewish future. Um, and so I've been doing uh, a lot of work with, with CAM, the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement. I was a visiting fellow uh, with the Heritage Foundation. I was a teaching fellow at the University of Southern California, taught a class there. Um, I do consulting. I, I lecture and speak professionally around the world. Um, as you mentioned, by the way, I'm just going to be speaking in Jerusalem in, the, in, the, in a few days from now. Tell and, us a little bit about that. Well, it's a great forum, actually, that is, um, that is meant to identify and call out uh, the anti-Semitism that we see in the, in the Palestinian movement, which is deeply important. I mean, look, uh, you know, there are many, many, many good, decent Palestinians. And for the sake of their future, we have got to be honest. And we have got to call out uh, uh, evil and anti-Semitism, the forces that threaten their own future. We've got to stand together and, uh, and call out these, uh, these uh, examples of... Uh, of real uh, uh, spiritual sickness within the Palestinian national movement. And, um, and by the way, doing so would be a great service to Palestinians because it would, it would allow us all to focus on what's really important, which is building, like I said before, building that better future that, frankly, Palestinian children deeply and richly deserve. And, uh, and they ain't going to get there, Eve. They ain't going to get there when, uh, when the forces of darkness prevail. And so this forum uh, is about calling out those forces of darkness, and I'm proud to be a part of it. Where is that going to be? Some of my listeners live in Israel. Maybe they'll come. Yeah, so it's going to be in Jerusalem on uh, Sunday evening, and uh, and I would love them to come. Um, it's, uh, it's I think that's June 25th. Yes, yes, this next Sunday evening at the Begin Center, if I'm not mistaken. That's exactly right, and uh, your listeners are welcome to come. I'd be, uh, be delighted to see you. Uh, to see your fans because let me tell you any fan of yours I'm a fan of them I'm a fan of them no I, I do want to say Eve about you that you you bring such a passion to your work your love of, of the of the land of Israel of the people of Israel and a, really of, of faith generally right your, your love of, of of God and of, of uh, spirituality um, just you, you, it shines in everything you do, and when you know when you talk about what's important, whether it's here in Israel or or outside of Israel, um, it really shows, and it, it's inspiring. It inspires me, and I know everyone who listens feels the same way. And so, thank you for what you do, for inspiring all of us uh, to be better people and to and to connect to what's really important, to God and spirituality. And after all. Um, each of us was created for a reason. We were all put here for a, for a purpose. We have a holy, a holy trajectory in this world, and uh, and it's critical for us to remember that in order to realize our potential. And you help us do that. So thank you. I am just grateful that I can do what I love, and uh, and I am grateful to be with you here today, also doing such important work. And the most important thing that you're doing is raising a family of strong Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews, bringing them here delightful children. You should have really much nachat, as they say, much joy from all of them, from your bat mitzvah girl. Good luck with all the teenage years, of course. And uh, no, but really, this is uh, the family is the key. And uh, getting to know all of you during the course of the day and the grandparents has really been just, just absolutely wonderful. And a privilege, really, to take you to Shiloh. So I hope a lot of people show up next week. And really, look, I would love to say, I hope you go out of business with the anti-Semitism because there's no need anymore. 
and that's it. And that would be the best thing. But it does seem like a very ancient hatred that's not going anywhere anytime soon. So in the meantime, we need people like you on the forefront. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, thank you. I'm in to all of, of the wonderful blessings. Thank you. Um, you know, on the subject of fighting anti-Semitism, coming here is an important part of it. Um, anti-Semitism takes many forms. But as you know, one of its chief manifestations is to undermine Jewish legitimacy uh, Jewish legitimacy as a people, Jewish peoplehood, and that means, of course, the, the connection of the Jewish people to the Jewish homeland. And the Jewish homeland is where we were today. Not only Shiloh, which, of course, is, is at the beating heart of the Jewish people, the first capital of, uh, of, uh, of the Jewish commonwealth here in the land of Israel, but we also went to the Psagot winery, and we didn't talk about that. And, you know, not only is this a, a gorgeous place, I mean, jaw-droppingly beautiful. I'll tell your listeners, for those of you who have not visited Psagot, you, you will think that you are in Tuscany. It is like a, like a, a beautiful, um, you know, chateau, wine chateau in the, in, the, in the hills of Tuscany. It is breathtaking. But in addition to that, in addition, of course, to producing, uh, you know, just first-rate wines. I mean, uh, amazing, amazing wines that are bestsellers around the world. But in addition to all of that, the Psagot Winery is at the front lines. As we know, we discussed it uh, earlier today. They are, they are plaintiffs in a in a high court of justice case that they brought against the European Union, uh, a pro BDS decision forcing Psagot to label all of its wines that they sell in Europe as, as being manufactured in occupied territory. This is an occupied territory. Yes, of course, there's a, a dispute over the territory, and certainly its, its future is subject to negotiations, and two peoples have, have uh, claims on the land, right? I mean, the, the Jews have an historical claim of, for, from today and from, from biblical times. Palestinians have a claim. These have to be resolved through negotiations. Of course, we know all of that, and we acknowledge that. But occupied territory? How dare people label this occupied territory? This is the land of Israel. And so Psagot Winery, God bless them, are at the front lines of this fight. And they said, no, you're not going to do that. How dare you? They said, how dare you? And they took the European Union to court. And I have to tell you, I think all of us should be saluting that effort to, first of all, to, to go back to to the ancient land to build a, a modern winery on the very site where there was an ancient winery 2,000 years ago. Wine was being made on that very site 2,000 years ago and to open a winery there and to say, we absolutely will not let you call this occupied territory and if you make us call it that, we're going to sue you. Let me tell you, these people are heroes. We should all be buying Psagot wine because of, not only because of how great it is, that it is, but, but because of what Psagot is doing. And so coming here and walking these lands, not only is it a deep and fulfilling spiritual experience, it is also a way to fight anti-Semitism. And that is, that is, uh, is uh, just the fact that you can do all of those things together is very powerful and very, very worthy. And so don't wait. Come visit. Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, Elon, thank you so much, Elon Carr, uh, for that and for really for having just a wonderful day. It's days like this that make me so happy that I'm a tour guide and are really able to show people the things in the land and the other people that I love so much. I'm just looking out the window here as we're heading back into Jerusalem from the hills of Binyamin, looking down on the Jordan Valley, behind it, the hills of Moab, the modern-day country of Jordan, 
the, the town over here where Jonathan fought a battle against the Philistines. I mean, it's just Bible all over the place. It's just three-dimensional Bible and the lessons of the Bible, a family and a faith and of goodness and of people, you know, standing up to challenges. And just like today, you know, fighting the evil among us. So uh, take care, everybody, all my listeners. I will be off to the States next week. I'll fill you in on that during next week's podcast. But I hope wherever you are, you are well and you are safe and you are healthy. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to Ben and to Tabitha for putting the show out. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everybody. And Chodesh Tov, the new month is here. The new Jewish month is here of Tammuz. So take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. And now, Eve Harrow brings us Dr. Scott Stripling on tour in Israel. Eve Harrow at Ancient Shiloh, about to get a private tour uh, with my tourists, uh, with Dr. Scott Stripling of the newest finds. But uh, Eve said you guys were coming, so I've stuck around to chat to chat with you. Thank you. And uh, let's keep you off the edge. I don't want to lose you either, especially (laughs) you. (laughs) So uh, you're standing at a very interesting spot. Um, This is our fifth season of excavation since 2017. We have about five more left probably to conclude our excavation. When we started, all of this was up to the level that I'm holding my hand right now. Okay, so all of this was underground. All of this was massively underground. So um, we have the largest excavation in the world now, believe it or not. 16 universities from 12 countries this summer, 400 volunteers working in and out throughout the summer. And so we've been able to make good progress. And um, you can see what has emerged here. This is a Bronze Age gate complex which continues in use into the Iron Age, which means into the Israelite period. So this, this infrastructure, I mean, look at this massive wall behind you with this glossy, this earthen embankment protecting the foundation. This wall was already here when Joshua arrived. It had a big mud brick superstructure on top of it that collapsed out. So when they came here, remember the Bible says you're going to occupy cities you did not construct. You're going to live in houses you did not build. This is a good example. So you've got infrastructure. Infrastructure is extremely extremely expensive, okay? Roads, drainage, buildings, fortifications. So they they inherit this infrastructure, and Joshua wrecks the tabernacle at Shiloh. It's what we're told in Joshua 18.1. So what seems to be happening, you can see below here these, these pillars, one, two, three, and there may be a fourth one. There was a beam going across those, and they're parallel with this, this big Bronze Age wall. So this is your outer gate. So all cities in antiquity had gates and don't think of it like a swinging door it's like a a complex a a large chamber business is conducted in the in the gateway Uh, it's like a big flea market Uh, the archives of the city are kept there the elders uh, sit in the the gate the bible says eli was sitting in the gate of shiloh when he died and um, this outer gate leads to an inner gate and inside there you have chambers on both sides see the opening in the wall so there's, you would never intentionally have an opening in your wall unless it was the gate. The whole point of the wall is to keep people out. This looks like the U.S. southern border. I mean, it's wide open, okay? <laughs> so that it, has to, it has to be for a gate. And so inside there's a chamber. As you walk into the inner gate, then that, there's a chamber there. And this is the perfect place where the ruler of the city or maybe Eli would have sat. And if you're sitting right there, guess what he's looking at? He's looking at the road. 
and what does the Bible tell us he was doing when he got the news? The runner, he sees him coming up the road, bringing the news that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, that his sons have died, and he falls back here, and then, then he dies. We also have what's called the Amarna letters, and in El Amarna 288, they date to that time period. It's a series of letters from these Canaanite city-states to Pharaoh in Egypt. El Amarna 288 is written from the king of Jerusalem. His name is Abdiheba, the king of Jerusalem, and he says that is that king before the capture? Yes. Uh-huh. And so he says that a man named Turbasu, who's the Egyptian ruler, you have to remember these city-states, these are not Canaanite city-states, they're Egyptian colonies. Just think of the U.S. when they were part of Great Britain. So these were colonies, and we know that from the Amarna letters. They're all under Pharaoh's control. So when the Israelites come in, they've been under Egyptian bondage for hundreds of years. So this idea that this is some kind of random genocide that takes place, nothing could be further from the truth. These are the people who have been trying to kill them for hundreds of years and have had them enslaved. Turbasu is slain in the gate of Silu, which is Shiloh. So not only Eli dies in the gate here, but also someone by the name of uh, Turbasu. So very interesting uh, development here. When you visit Shiloh right now, it's amazing because it's Shiloh, because the Mishkan was here. But there's not a whole lot to see, okay? You just come here because you get this amazing feeling. But when we're finished with our excavation five years from now, you're going, I, oh. <laughs> happy <Careful>. bar mitzvah. <laughs> women, all, women often faint while I'm talking, okay? Don't worry, I'm, I'm used to this, all right? And Eli broke his neck here. here. Just as I said it, that was right on time for you to fall. Amazing. You okay? (laughs) Okay, so the the point is that that once this is all restored for tourism, this is going to be something to actually see. You'll be able to walk through the gate and through these buildings, whereas right now there's not much of that that you're able to to do. So that's that's what our goal is. Five years. We've got another four, five, or six years to, to finish our original, um, my research goals that I had at the beginning. I think we now know exactly what we were looking for. We just need to finish the excavations in these areas. So three main things, the gate, this monumental building that we'll walk up and, and have a look at, which matches the dimensions of the Mishkan and it's east-west. And just, we're now finding by the way, that's huge what he just said. It's huge. But Do you want to repeat so close to the gate? Uh. Yeah, why not? It leads you right to it. That's why you come to Shiloh. This was a surprise for him. Yes, I wrote an article before the dig began saying I thought that the Mishkan would have been on the summit. I never thought this made much sense over here because it would have been unprotected outside the wall. Why would you leave the Mishkan unprotected? Mm-hmm. Plus, we have a massive bone deposit over here. We've been analyzing all day today about 10,000 bones from this Favisa all bones from the biblical sacrificial system not one single pig bone and it's bronze age so of course in the bronze age everyone's thinking canaanites but canaanites consume pork we don't have a single pig bone and so it's due east of this building so why would the mishkan if it was here they're carrying bones uphill and then walk you know going to dump them doesn't seem to make any sense so yeah i I was not expecting this. So I was more surprised than anyone when this building began to emerge. Now you can see the walls are preserved to about two and a half feet. The, the, the Mishnah says in two places, in the Zevayim and the Seder Olam, that there was a permanent building built at Shiloh for the tabernacle with a tent over it as a roof. 
seems like that's what we're what we're uncovering and so we need still need you know more excavation for me to you know be more totally confident and to announce this but it's no secret that that's what we think we have okay um, we're now finding murex shells inside this building murex shells did you just get chills no okay. I have one with me okay. <laughs> just happen to have a murex shell okay I'm impressed Eve I can still impress you Scott uh, you can wow why is it with this this snail is the source of the dye for trellis and for argaman, and that's, they found those here. Who wore that? Inside this building, the the high priests. Okay, this is the dye for the garments. So, you you don't find these normally at, at Israelite sites. Only at at a site where, like Priest Jerusalem or, or or Shiloh or at a priestly city. Like um, anyway, diff, different ones. So we're now finding these murex shells, ceramic pomegranates, tiny ones, like would hang from the, the robes, you know, pebbles and pomegranates. So the, all of these things together add up to like a tabernacle culture of a sacrificial system that took place here. We have storage rooms that line the inside of the wall right next to this building, logically where you would store tithes. You know, if people are going to bring these tithes in biblical times, they can't go to tabernacle.org and make a secure online donation, you know. <laughs> They're going to have to bring commodity, uh, and that's what it appears that, that they're doing. We have a bunch of them that we excavated this season. So um, if you want, we'll walk up and take a look at the building and uh, then pass by the Favisa. Sound okay. good? And how about yeah. the wet sifting yeah, that you helped set up? Yes, yeah, so we, we did not invent wet sifting, but we perfected it. Um, we brought it into the field. What we do is we wash the matrix after we dry sift it. There's still dirt that is encrusting everything. So what we do is we built our own system here, uh, a little water tower, and we recycle all the water, and then when we finish, we drain it into the fields to, to water the crops down below. Um, when we wash this, the things that we find will blow your mind, okay? On Friday, last Friday, the, our final day of excavation, in the last hour of the day, of a scarab and a bula in wet sifting. Do you know what those are? This guys? is a, a lump no. of clay that has been impressed with a with a scarab oh. and it seals an ancient document. Oh, the wow. entire bula, the entire inscription is, is was, oh, these are the things that are being thrown away in the past, okay? We had already excavated, we dry sifted and then normally these things get thrown away. What we do is another step of the process and for every one that we used to find, we now find five. We've been throwing away about 75% of the evidence in the past, archaeologists have. So this is a game changer. This is a game changer in archaeology. And so this is why the Antiquities Authority will be here tomorrow. We're training their staff in how to do this. Uh, the University of Chicago contacted me two weeks ago wanting to send people to be trained in how to do this as well. We just built two, two uh, sifters for another excavation. We want everybody... To, we're throwing away the evidence. Once you get it out of context, then it doesn't have any meaning. So if we excavate it in the field, we know exactly where it came from. So it's a game changer. Very high tech on one hand. You know, we're flying drones. We're entering data throughout the day. We're doing micro analysis, uh, various scientific tests that we're doing on soil and extracting collagen from bones. So it's very high tech. And then on another hand, we're very low tech. I mean, it takes human beings, you know, to go and dig, to get on yeah, that have to make... The informed decisions, you know, as, as they're going. So, a very exciting work, you know, that we do. I'll give you a Bible verse that uh, you can think about as you go your way. Uh, Psalm 102.14 says, Blessed are those who love your dust and cherish your stones. 
for me and for my team this is a great privilege to get to do what we're doing we're having the time of our lives excavating here at ancient shiloh yeah. but just to put in a little bit of a political context he's not in israel here the laws here are not israeli laws like the antiquities authority but the civil administration thieves everywhere i mean in terms of even getting your stuff published are there places that won't publish your stuff because of where yeah. you've dug so it's more challenging for us to publish because some of uh, more liberal uh journals they they just simply will not publish things from this area what we have done, however, is we've engaged big time in that, and we've, I just published an article in a peer-reviewed journal that is ranked in the 93rd percentile of all peer-reviewed journals. So sometimes maybe we've used that for an excuse too much, Good. and we need to go after the big, the big journals and write, write great, do great stuff, write great articles, and publish in you great places. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yes, ma'am. We've never found any human bones here and inside the walls at Shiloh. Now, there's tombs in these caves, second temple period tombs, all in the caves around here. But, uh, you know, they bury outside the city. I don't have, right now I've got my hands full excavating this, but, uh, you know, it could be excavated for sure. I have excavated second temple period tombs before, and I've excavated a lot of human skeletons before. But the only ones we would find inside if they're murder victims, okay? And we do have evidence now of the both. I'll tell you, the first revolt and the second revolt both played out right here. We have evidence of both revolts. We have destruction layers from the 70 AD uh, first revolt, from the 135 Bar revolt. So oh, heavily populated. This is yeah. It's more more populated during the second temple period here than in any other time. Like the pottery every day, like 70% of it comes from that time period. So it's heavily populated. Stone vessels, mikvot, uh, Hasmonean coins from the first century BC still in use in the first century AD. These are all the signs of second temple period Judaism. But are you able to date, for example, the, the animal bones that you believe were from the, uh, yeah, they are. We can date them. We extract collagen from the bones, and then we do carbon dating on the collagen. And then we also have thousands of pieces of pottery that are intermixed with those bones from the late Bronze Age also. And the reason that's important is because all of these vessels are restorable vessels. They can all be mended, whereas normally that's very rare. Uh, but there, they're all can be put back together, so it seems like it's intentional, like a drink offering. You pour out, as part of the sacrificial process, you pour out a libation, and then you break the vessel, because it too has value. And so, yeah, we can date the vessels, we can also date the bones with carbon-14. Yeah. Um, libation, His kids speak Hebrew, he speaks Hebrew. Excellent. So when you're done in five years, it's going to be like the city of David yeah, that's what we hope. That's what we hope. This this platform is going to need to go also so that we can finish um, what we're doing. But yes, yes, we would like people to be able to, with signage, be able to walk right, through. Right. and Describe Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you estimate the end going this way? The end? For me, the end is right there. So this is my field. that I'm, I've got a couple of squares up top there. I don't plan to go other than a couple more meters further that direction. We're going east. So the Favisa, the bone deposit, is on the eastern edge. And so what I'm doing is I'm connecting 
the, the western edge, our area C, with the eastern edge, which is area D, and opening up that whole area. One of the problems in archaeology is if we just open up one square here and one square there, we're subject to misinterpretation. So what I've tried to do is to open up a broader area, connect the work that the Israelis done in the 80s and the Danish did in the 1920s, and to connect all that and to, to uh, I think we're less subject to misinterpretation when we do that. The boule that you said you found, do you know what it's from? Who? Haven't had time to analyze it yet. We just got it Friday. I gave it to Orna, uh, who's here right now. Uh, Orna's the top conservationist in Israel. And so she was here doing, we just did conservation. Look at these big pillars. Can you see mm -hmm. the work we did on them today? Conserving them, see between the stones? Right. Yeah. So that's mortar between there. So we're, we want to ensure that things are stable for generations to come. It did not need any. So Orna will clean that in the lab, the bula and the scarab, and then do impressions for us, and then we can get those under microscopes and get a really good look at them. So and super guys, exciting. I mean, follow Google Scott Strip in the next few weeks, amazing. and you'll see the stuff that's coming out of you. And you were here. Wow. Yeah, and follow us at digshiloh.org. That's our website, and then you can just search my name, and you know you'll find a few things. Yeah. Well, I am at a university, but our organization, ABR, is Associates for Biblical Research. So there are 16 universities that are part of our consortium, okay? So I lead that consortium. I had 20 of my students here with me this summer, but we have students from lots of other uh, schools that are participating with us, too. Yeah. So, and um, we appreciate your interest. It's fantastic. And thank you. Um, happy Bar Mitzvah. I uh, hope you have a wonderful time uh, while Thank you're you so while you're here, and appreciate your interest very much. Oh, this has been oh, riveting. Wow. Should this we is go my up? first time you're here. I'm I'll, incredibly excited. Well, it is. Uh, it is incredibly exciting. Uh, last year, um, we had a family come on a on a bar mitzvah. Uh, Josh Harris, who's the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, and he just bought the Washington Redskins, and so they landed at the airport, and they called and said, "I'm real busy working." Yeah, Josh Harris wants to come. They're coming straight from the airport. It's their sunbusiness, so they want to meet you. They heard about this and that. And I'm just going, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. And then a helicopter comes <laughs> and, and lands. I said, okay. <laughs> okay. Where do you, you land one of those? <laughs> well, yeah, wherever you want, apparently. <laughs> so let's go up and I'll show you the building real quick. Yeah. This wall that I'm standing on, the corner is way over there. It looks like it's missing, but it's because of Second Temple period, they cut a wall through it. We had Byzantine walls on top we removed, then we had Roman walls that we removed, and now you're down to the Iron Age one, okay? So this is, you want me to hold this, Eve, or you're good? Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so this big wall that I'm standing on then intersects and goes across over there, and where the fence is, we have the corner, you cannot see it from where you're standing, but the corner is there, and it goes all the way across under this big dump pile. And then it comes out on the other side of the path. And so, yes. So here's the wall that I was standing on. Now see the rest of it here? So it's still going. And the, the corner is right over here. So I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. Be very careful when you walk through here. Stay off of the edges, okay? Well, you're in the middle of the building now. Okay, so when I did the math on this building, I estimated that this would be the entrance to the building right here. So guess what we have? Oh, wow. Guess what this is? 
This is a good guess. It would become a toilet. Don't stand on that. That's unstable uh, for your safety. Uh, This is a socket stone for the door. Did you know that the Bible mentions the door of the tabernacle? 1 Samuel 4.15. So when I did the math and I said the, the wall... The eastern wall should be here. Then when we excavated, I said the threshold should be here. We uncovered and lo and behold, there is the socket stone in situ of the door of this monumental building. It's the exact dimensions given in the Bible for the Mishkan. It's east-west. It's divided on a ratio of two to one. And the favisa, the bone deposit, is due east of here. So when they're leaving, they're depositing these sacred bones. So this is what it looks like. You know, we'll keep excavating and... uh, Ah, well, the bones are from clean animals. We have no no pig bones. Um, this is from a later time period. So they've cut in when they the Israelites come back and reset. The site is destroyed by the Philistines in about 1075. About less than a, a century later, they return. The Israelites do, and they resettle the site. And when they do, they cut silos and you know fire pits and silos all into this area. They probably did not even know that this was the building uh, at that point. So uh, that's the short version. The gate, the monumental building, and the favisa are the main three areas where where we're working. So it's pretty cool stuff. You said they're from the right side? Yeah, so the bones are disproportionately from the right sides of the animals, I should mention. Which the Bible says in Leviticus 7 that the right side of the animal is the priest portion. Who's living at Shiloh? The priest, okay? Hannah and Elkanah are visiting. They don't live here, okay? So again, this... It's very consistent with what we would expect if the Bible were giving us a reliable story. Yes. Yeah, so you would enter the building right here where the socket stone is for the door. And so you would be standing in the holy place right now. And then as you got further, there's a cross wall and that would be the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was for over three centuries. So for me, it's kind of unbelievable. I had as an archaeologist that happens to get to do this this stuff that we're excavating something that appears that it's the holy of holies so we get busy working and then you have to kind of stop and pinch yourself and realize where you're standing yeah i mean we haven't even officially announced it but i will tell you that the Two of the heads of the IAA, Israeli Antiquities Authority, were here last week, and they stood right where you're standing, and they said, what else could it be? It walks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. I mean, what else could it be? So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of excitement about it. Listen, archaeologists are very opinionated. <laughs> we, have a, we have a saying where there are two archaeologists, there are three opinions. And so, there... <laughs> no, if it's Judaism, it's four opinions, okay? Or five, okay? So there, of course, you will have a lot of opinions about things, but I do think the majority of people will recognize the evidence. We hope. Yeah. So thank you, Eve. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Well, I was happy to do it. Any friend of Eve's is a friend of mine. So thank you for coming by. Yes, stay in touch. Shalom, everybody. This is Jeremy Gimpel from the Land of Israel Network, but also from the Land of Israel Fellowship. We have members from 31 countries joining us every week, Sunday, live at 6 p.m. For those that can't make it live, they get a direct recording. Just go to thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship 
We're growing together, we're learning together, we're celebrating together. The gates are open for all who want to come and join. 